I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, conversations, interviews, streams of consciousness, music, and NBA references. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up are two conversations. The first is with Catherine Narducci, who I spoke to earlier this month after being connected by a mutual friend. And the second is with Gino Caffarelli, who I spoke to this time last year. A couple things happened after that. One of them being the audio for my portion of that interview completely degrading and me never getting around to re-recording it. But I did. And because Catherine and Gino are best friends in real life, I thought it would be nice to honor that by connecting the two of them on this podcast project together. Catherine, of course, needs no introduction. And I'm truly grateful to her for spending some time to do this and revisit her time as Charmaine Bucco. Gino is an actor and producer and terrific all-around guy who had a small role in the show, but no less fascinating a story. It's been a while since I've done these. I probably have a half dozen or so more that I've been sitting on that I did last year. And I'll probably get those out to you guys at some point too. That's all I got. Here's Catherine, followed by Gino. Catherine, thanks for being a part of this. It means a lot to me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Before we jump in the Wayback Machine, how has this year been going for you so far? And how are you liking that Clubhouse app? The year for me is, I, I mean, I can't say like everybody else because a lot of people have lost people. Um, we did lose a co- my daughter's cousin um, and my friend lost her mother and her father and her aunt. Um, but I didn't lose any first family, thank God, like, you know, first cousins and all that. So I kind of feel like I'm ahead of the game because we're all okay and we survived it so far. It's still going, but I consider myself fortunate because I still have my kids. I still have my whole entire family, like first blood family, as I'm saying. And, you know... It's it's okay. I have to say it's okay. It's bad. It's bad because of the world we live in and the way we got to do the whole mass thing. But I can't complain. I'm alive, and so is my family. Honestly, where are you, by the way? Are you in the city? Uh, I just bought this place. Um, I'm in the Bronx. I moved out of the city, which I'm born and raised in Manhattan, Harlem. Yes. Um, I see the chair behind you. Nice touch. Uh, talk about the art there just for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, it warms my heart. Um, well, talk about the painting over your behind your head and the one over your shoulder. What's that all about? Oh, that's a self portrait. And the one hanging over my head right there. The one, the one to the side, the one over your, Oh, you see that. Yeah, I see it. Oh yeah. Those are, those are, I did, um, I did a whole, I had a show, which I sold a lot of them. It was called The Gathering and it was, it's all nude women and they're all, nobody's perfect. Who has one 
one boob bigger than the other, you know, one eyes lower than the other. And I just wanted to, after all the filters and everything we see, I just wanted to go in and do a over the top version of what real, real, real looks like. Wow. Of course, magnified and pretty over the top, but. No, it looks the one the one behind you is beautiful. I just, it's the first thing that caught my eye, and the reason that I asked you directly before I even started chatting with you is that one of the things that I do on the podcast is obsess over the details in the frame, right? The artwork on the walls, the 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 set pieces in the rooms. So I pay this attention my, to that stuff. This is my pandemic painting. She's got her eyes with her little vodka bottle, her mask, and uh, she's just. Just glued to Cuomo, I guess. <laughs> the whole country was glued to Cuomo in the very beginning of this. Well, this thing. represents the uh, our state when we were in the lockdown. Lockdown. Is New York still on lockdown, or is it pretty liberalized in terms of like how you can move around and what's open and what's not? Because LA is still very much locked down. Well, New York is. Um, I think when did they close the um, inside of the restaurant? We had them open with 25%. Then they they closed closed, it again. Yeah. New York is still, you could still sit outside. So really when you see some of these restaurants and how all out they went and the money they spent to build outside dining, there's, I mean, I've been to places that you could take your coat off. Like they have the full, not like little dingy, little flim flam heaters, but like they put it because they knew that they had to survive. And they said, you know, we're going to invest. We're going to be outside in the, in the winter and snow. And they put, I went in one, it looked like a log cabin. Beautiful. Like with the bearskin rug and a little fake fireplace, candles to make it feel cozy, heaters and lit up with the feast lights. I mean, in the West Village and East Village, especially, the Upper East Side too, um, I feel they went the strongest. They in The West Village looks like France. You could be in Europe, like the cafes outside, and they're all in the street, not on the sidewalk. So they're all one after the other. Wherever the restaurants are, they're one after the other. So it makes it look like a jewel, little jewel box. I read a beautiful piece in the Times recently showing how people were going out in like 30 degree weather to support the restaurants and sit outside and bundle up. And uh, it's great to see. We have the same situation here where the the restaurants are all outside. The weather is obviously nicer, but um, it still doesn't feel the same. And it's just uh, it's a wild, crazy time. But I'm I'm happy to see you on on the other side of it for the most part. And I'm I like you. I'm very optimistic about 2021. So. Um, I know, I know you're shooting right now, right? You're, you're doing, uh, your show currently. How's that going? How's, how's that work adjustment been? I should say, cause you've never had to act under these kind of strictures before. Um, What's it been like for you? Well, that's it. Also just want to say and make it clear. That's another reason why my, uh, this I'm blessed. I didn't lose anybody and I have a job and I have, um, a job that is hard to come by right now in the film industry, which we all know. So I feel very blessed, humbled by it. Um, what is it like? You get tested. Every day. No. you. Get, I get tested three times a week. If you're in the episode, it's three times a week. If you're like Forrest Whitaker and Vincent D'Onofrio, 
uh, I think that from what I heard, they get tested every day because they interact with, I, I don't know how it works, but the godfather of Harlem is on the COVID game, on the COVID game. And it's a big budget to keep that COVID game going. But the producers um, and Chris Brancato, the creator of the show, they wanted to make sure that everybody's safe and that they're not going to jeopardize anybody's health. And they put a whole filtration system in our stages, brand new for COVID, which was very expensive, but they're on the um, COVID game. They're really, 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 really safe. It's weird because you have to come and you can't interact. And normally like on a show, you can go walk to set and say, what scene are they doing right now when you're waiting to do yours later or while you're hanging around, you can go visit the set and watch the monitors and see the scenes. You're not allowed to go near the set unless you are actually working in that scene. Um, uh, and you have to wear a mask and a, a shield until you were in place. So if this was my kitchen, and I was gonna do this scene here right now. I'm wearing it right until I sit down in place and they start rolling. Then they come and they take it off. Soon as they cut, cut, you have to stay there, wait for your COVID. Each person gets a COVID chaperone. They come back with your mask and your box and they take you right back to your room. No wow. interacting. So when you get all the mask and the face shield off and you're at your mark, is that when the makeup happens or has the makeup already happened pre? The makeup happened, but I mean, you know, they do the touch-ups. Right, you, right. You know, you got a full face on, you have your makeup on. And um, then when you, when, when it's really ready to, you know, they put like a setting spray that it's not coming off, but it's still not fun. You know, they, they come and like, if the, the uh, bands, maybe mess up the blush or something, you know, to touch you up. And that's what we have to do. So this is kind of a chronological interview. So you grew up in Harlem and I read that your family was connected. My family was not connected. That's a lie. Okay. So don't believe it. This is a classic example of don't believe everything you read on the internet, right? Absolutely. In the neighborhood that I grew up in, there were very colorful people. Very nice, unbelievable people. I also read, and tell me if, if I'm out of uh, out of turn here, but early in your career, I read that you were not supported or encouraged to pursue acting. And my question when I read that was, how did you overcome that? How do you overcome people in your life not necessarily rooting for you or cheering for you or expecting you to go down a more traditional path, if you will? My family wasn't really like nobody was being mean about it like oh don't do that they didn't care they didn't care what I did but I was a single parent and I had two kids and they saw me struggle and they wanted me to do something that out of concern out of say use your brain and get a job that you know pays good money and you could support yourself because the arts for anything you do, if you play an instrument, if you paint, which I do, but it's not, it's the only, I think, um, profession that is not guaranteed. You take, you take a chance. You are literally going into the dream and hoping that the dream becomes a reality and you're living a dream 
And you, that's what you hope. You hope that when you wake up, you are living a reality and you have made it as an actor and you could pay your bills and you could do that. So my family, once I did it, you know, first of all, I have a strong will. And I think, you know, when I, whenever I hear these people, it's got to be a will. It's got to be something that you really born with to pursue that you don't care if you make it or not that you just have to act or you just have to paint or you just have to play an instrument, uh, whether nobody sees you or hears you, or you, you know, I always say that, right. I've repeated that a lot. Whether you sell a painting, whether some, whether somebody hears your podcast or not, I, um, for me, anything that I do, I, I never cared. So when people say, Oh, get, you know, you need a, a job with security. And this, like, to me, that's like, Charlie Brown talk. I don't even understand that. No, for me, the first and foremost thing is I have to, um, I have to live my dreams and you only get one life. It's too short. I watched both my parents die very young. And I said, I'm never going to let that happen to me. I'm not going to die young and not have anything or not have ever lived my dream. So the drive really of it all was I was very close to my mother. We would be uh, movieholics on TV and she would make me watch every single movie there ever was. And then quiz me after who was the actors, who what's, you know, talk to me about the movie. And I was very close with her and we loved doing that. It was a bonding thing that we had. And when my mother died um, and she always wanted me to be an actor. And when she died, I found her dead and she was 49 or oh, 50 I'm sorry she just turned 50 and found her in the bed this woman was the my best friend and a great woman but never had a job on the books never got anywhere in life financially my father died when I was a kid we struggled our whole lives we were homeless we slept in Central Park she was in and out of Bellevue. I watched with my own eyes. This is what I watched as a kid. I had come from a very dysfunctional family. And I'm just speaking straight up because that's the drive in me. When I saw my mother, after all that we've been through, me and my mother and my sisters, and then at the end of it, the only thing you have to show for it is you're dead in your apartment at 50 years old in the bed and you didn't accomplish one thing you wanted to accomplish in life. You basically gave your life to your kids and that's what made you happy. And my mother was so talented. It was beyond her voice, like Judy Garland, wrote poetry, like crazy. And, and probably like Sonny said in the Bronx, they wasted talent. But instead I come home and there she is dead in a bed. And that was a wake up call to me to say, that's not going to happen to me. That's not how my life is ending. Not at all. And so when people tell me anything about anything in life, I, I take it that very serious and I, and it's my life and I do whatever the hell I want and that's it. I, and so pursuing an acting career was my, my, I was born to be an actress. First of all, it's not something I just thought, Oh, that's inside me. It had to come out. That's one, the drive, the gift from God. 
and the um, my passion and my imagination would not let me settle for anything less than to be an actor. So, like I said to you before, if I was going to pursue it, no matter what, if I never made it, I'd still go act in a broken down theater and be very happy about it and not pissed off or not bitter because this is just what I have to do for myself. It's not for anybody else. It's not for an award. It's not really for the paycheck, but you do need money to live and pay your rent. So you need that. And if that's your career, then that's your sole career. You need the money. You need to get jobs. So you, that's the only reason you need the money for, but otherwise I would still, you know, be doing side jobs. I was a waitress. I worked in the billing department and a fruit and produce uh, in the Bronx um, uh, distributors. Uh, I would have had a side job by now. I would have kept doing it though. I would have never quit acting. Never, 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 never. Love that. Love the message. I play little games with my, I have two little kids. I play little games with them and uh, I watch a lot of movies with them right now. You said that your mom quizzed you after you would watch movies. What do you think the intent was behind that? Was it just a fun exercise or was there some sort of a, did she have some sort of a master plan? My mother had no plans. She was <laughs> off the edge of her seat. There's no plan. Um, not even my name when I was born was a plan. Um, my, the spelling is unique. How do you actually spell it? Because the internet has it spelled two different ways. Yeah, it's, I actually spell it K-A-T-H-R-I-N-E. No E before the R. Okay. I think that that exercise, she used to, what I say by exercise, after we watch a movie, she would, we would have this imaginary film school. And she'd say, okay, children, gather around, gather around. Now we're going to, you know, we're going to laugh. We're going to cry. We're going to do this. And she would bring me up like I, she'd raise your hand and we had these imaginary kids and I would raise my hand and she'd say, okay, Catherine, come up. We want you to do the scene in the movie, you know, whether it was watching, you know, Madame X or just, just be my destiny. Uh, do, and I would act it out and she would see what I knew and, and just for fun yeah. just because she loved it so much, but I loved it so much because she loved it. And she loved it because I loved it. And so I don't think there was any kind of plan, but um, it was just her imagination versus my imagination, and it worked. My other two sisters didn't do it. You know, I just really had a tremendous bond with my mother in that way. And we would put shows on in the house, and I would hand her a brush and say, ladies and gentlemen, Bunny Narducci, and she'd get up and start singing, and then she'd introduced me and I'd get up and I'd start tap dancing and whatever. This is what we did. Were you the oldest? I was the middle. The best stories in Hollywood are accidental ones. And those are the ones that you always root for and cheer for too. Um, your Bronx tale story uh, was again, something that I read. And I think I heard you even say once it was accidental. Tell listeners who haven't heard how it happened, how it came together for you. And is there a lesson there again for anybody out there listening Okay, so I was a closet case actress, and that's how it was starting. That's how I was starting to do it, because anytime I mentioned it, they'd go, get out of here, you're, you're too old, you have two kids. And meanwhile, I was low 30s. Um, I was like, actually, maybe I was like late 20s. Uh, but when I got to Bronx Hill, I was 38. Um, and so 
no, I was, what was I, 34 maybe when I got a Bronx tail. I think it was 34. Anyway, uh, I was working in the Hunts Point Terminal Market and I would make everybody laugh. Like I never took my job, any job seriously. I would always be goofing off on any job that I had because I knew that I wanted to be an actress. It was like when I was in school, I was like, I don't need this. I want to act. I'll never need this, you know? And so any job I had, I was just never in it a hundred percent. So in this job in particular, I would make everybody laugh. And my boss was really rich. Her name was Ronnie Oaken. And she owned uh, a big tomato company, Oaken Tomatoes, which all of this everywhere, the city, California, probably. She was filthy rich and she was um, dating this guy, Sam, who was De Niro's best friend. And she would come in every single weekend. Um, she was very, had this like attitude, like, oh, you know, and she treated us. We was like, not bad, but like the help. The help. But not in a bad way, but just like, and she came in and she would come in with pictures of her and De Niro on a sailboat or her, Sam and De Niro eating out. And I'd always say, oh my God, Ronnie, take me with you. And she'd go, ha, 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 you know, and pass off and leave. And I'd go, oh my God, I want because when I was young, me before my mother died, she would always say, we watched coming to um, um, Once Upon a Time in America, The Deer Hunter. These were her favorite movies. And she'd always say, when you become an actress, you have to meet Robert De Niro. You got to make me meet Robert De Niro. So when I got to this place and I was closet case act, acting, I would buy backstage and not tell anybody and go on these auditions while I was working there. So this um, Ronnie Oaken now is a person who's in connection with De Niro, but let's leave that for later. So she'd always laugh at me and go, ah, ha, ha, ha. So one day I go to work and Annabella, my coworker said, there's an open call for a Bronx tale, a movie called a Bronx tale. And De Niro's looking for a nine-year-old. I figured in my mind, if I could just get there, I knew nothing about the audition process. Like I, like, like on that scale. And I said, I'm thinking he's going to be there. I'm not thinking casting director, then you go to him. So I said, I know. I'll, she goes, he's looking for a nine-year-old and it's an open call. For those that don't know real quick, by the way, this is his movie. He directed this movie. So he would have been possibly in the room, especially at this stage for such a key character. Yeah, for, for the boy. So I take my son there for Colosio, young Colosio, and he goes in the room. And while he's in the room, in a broken down theater in the Bronx, not a broken down, I shouldn't say that, a little theater, you know, just call for the romantic part of it. Um, <laughs> I go in there. Dramatic I pause. There, <laughs> uh, I go in this theater and uh, Ellen Chenoweth is there, who I love, big casting director. Um, and when my son goes in the room, now I'm in the lobby waiting. And all these girls start walking in that are look like me and talk like me, right? And they're signing in. And I said, what are you guys here for? They said, we're here for the wife. But I didn't know De Niro's wife. And I was like, the wife? So when she came out with my son, I said, could I go in for the wife? And she goes, oh, no, that's actually a SAG call. It's not an open call. What your son did, SAG. If we don't find the woman tonight, the wife tonight, tomorrow we're going to have it an open call. 
call me up and I'll let you know if you should come back. I said, okay. We went home. The next day I woke up. I was ready to go to work. And I decide not to go to work. I'm going to do it. I call her up. She says, no, we didn't find the person. You can come in. I go in. I read. And um, I'm going to make a, sh a short story because it's a long, great story. But I'm going to make it. So she um, calls me the next day. I go down there. She calls me the next day. I said, Bob, saw your tape. Can you come down? I go down. And I read with him. And then, uh, and Chaz is there and, uh, they keep calling me back, calling me back, call back, call back. Then finally they say, there's a possibility you're going to do a screen test. I get the screen test. I go back and I end up getting the role, but it's a long, great story, but I, I just go on and on. I know you've said it a million times. I'm just, I want to address it. It's a big sort of. I look at it as uh, when I consider the people that I talk to, the, the moments in their life where, you know, just things happen. And it's always a great thing to relive. Uh, and it's always a great thing to hear for people that don't really know before, because that's what life really is. is these, it's these little moments that, that become bigger moments and as, they, as they take shape. So great film. I went back and looked at it after we connected and we were going to do this. And I just remembered uh, how well it's aged. And it's just a great timeless story. And I, like I said, I have a little boy now. And so you just, it, it, it takes on a different lens when you're a parent um, and the messages in it. Um, yeah. So Sopranos origin story, again, you can be as brief as you want, but just how did it happen? I'm going to ask you some more like global questions about it. I'm not going to get into any of the specifics with you. I know you've already talked about that stuff, but again, just sort of set the stage for where you were in your life professionally. Okay. So my origin story is I was very, very, uh, very good friends with Kathy Moriarty. She's a longtime friend of mine. I love her. And Kathy Moriarty called me and said, Narducci. She gave me the name Narducci. She said, Narducci, you got to go in for this show. It's called The Sopranos. And I said, oh, uh, yeah. I thought it was about singers. And I was like, I, but I don't sing. And she said, no, no, it's a really, really good script. Call your agents. I called my agents. They looked into it and they said, okay, they got me an audition. And I read for Edie. And uh, David Chase and everybody, they really, they liked me, obviously. And they said, we want you to come back. Um, but we have a, another role for you, Charmaine Bucco. And I went back. And I read for Charmaine Bucco. And um, I got that role. I got it. That's how I got it, through Kathy giving me the tip and then reading for Edie's role, uh, Carmela, and then I got Charmaine. So the show's been over for a long time now, and I know many of the finer details about the episodes or moments are tough to recall, but what I'm interested in is your sort of reaction and response to the resurgence and in interest in the show, over the, especially over the past couple of years. What are some of the memories that have surfaced in reconnecting with a lot of the cast members. I know you were at the convention last year and the 20th anniversary was a little bit before that. What are some of the memories that have bubbled up as you've had these like private conversations with your fellow castmates and friends? What has stood out to you, especially over the past couple of years? I mean, every time we see each other in a big group, I mean, we all stay in touch with each other. Different people stay in touch with different you know, actors say with different actors like Dre Dreo, I still talk to and Jamie and 
Robert and Vinny Pastor are very close to. He lives, I could throw a stone in his house. He's close and we were close before we, we close before we um, did the show. Um, I think what comes up for me, I can't speak for anybody else, but every time we're in a room where it's the, a bunch of us, um, <clears throat> I would say it just keeps reminding me of the relationships that we had with each other while filming and after holding it onto those relationships. Because as you know, you do a movie, you become close while you're filming or even a TV show, you, you know, you become close while you're doing it and you feel like a family, but then the family's over and you move on and you learn how to do that. It's weird. When you first become an actor, it's very weird to get used to that, but that's the reality of it. On Sopranos, and what happens every time I see them to come back to the question is I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm at a family reunion. I feel like I'm with my family. I feel like, um, you know, we're all so close. It's a special bond that you'll, I don't, we will never get it again. I, I would say, you know, I never say never. I never say impossible. I, I can't see that happening. And, uh, all of us together are like, there's this energy and this force and we're all always rooting for each other. There's nothing catty. There's nothing like, oh, she's working. And you know how people can get like power trips. And there never was on that show ever, ever. Everybody supported everybody. Even if you were not that significant, you were treated like you were. Just it's, it was all even. And James was the role model for that. James and Edie. To me, they were the, he was the captain of the ship and Edie, Edie was the uh, first lady. You know, we, they were the best examples and they were just wonderful um, role models as what you can be if you're a good person and you have major success and you don't have to be a dick and you don't have to change. And none of us changed. Nobody changed. Everybody stayed the same. And I know it has to be... Uh, to really do something with being real New Yorkers, you know, New Yorkers, just New York actors are just, I think they're the best. I think that they're just so down to earth and real and they know, you know, it's a job and they love what they do and they're real artists and they don't look at it like celebrity or power. So I don't think that never came into play on our set ever. Well, your relationship, the couple of the Bucos on the show, was my second favorite couple on the show. And uh, we joked on the podcast at least half a dozen times about how, you know, everything's all about cinematic universes these days. And like, obviously, the prequel movies coming out. And how do you keep the universe of The Sopranos going into the future? And I am I'm the number one hand raiser for a series on the Bucos uh, because they're still around as far as we know. The and spinoff? It could be a total spinoff. It could be like... A, oh, it could let's be put that out there. Oh, me and Ian... Johnny, always talk about that. It's been on Pada Bing for a year and a half. Uh, the Bucos, it's a, but it would be like a dramedy. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be so serious. It would be sort of like a comedic take on, like you know, the Artie and his and his restaurant aren't impresario uh, misadventures. And I interviewed uh, John Ventimiglia in Brooklyn, right outside his house, at a cafe, and I told him the same thing. I was like, you know, the, there's all these shows now. It's all about nostalgia right now, Catherine. Like the 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 Cobra Kai show, right? It's uh, anybody that grew up watching the Karate Kid is just having 
the time of their life going oh, back. Oh, I'm obsessed. I it's love so nostalgic. So anyway, I'm just putting that out there for you too. Now that I get to finally speak to you, that uh, sign me up for the Bucos. So if there's any way, sign, that, sign me up for the Bucos. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I think I even remember Chase talking about something early on. There's an, I've read every interview he's done, and I've seen every video he's ever made about the subject. And early on, the Bucos were a very near and dear sort of premise for him. So. Um, I think the name Buko actually comes from somebody very close to uh, his family or so it's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm sure he's had these conversations, you know, in private, but, uh, it's just a question of actually gearing up. And, and as you know, most of the people in the show have passed on, but there is, there is, there's one couple that's still standing strong. So, um, <laughs> I'm going to say Charmaine and Artie, and I want to hear in your words, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Honest. Talk about Charmaine's character, specifically her strength, the inability to be swayed by Tony and Carmela's life. That's her whole arc, essentially, is that, you know, she's not going to succumb to that. Like, she doesn't need that in her life. You kind of spoke about it personally, kind of very eloquently and beautifully, that you were going to do what you were going to do, whether or not you made it big. Um, and for some reason, I saw that as strangely applicable to Charmaine. She was going to live her life without regard to whether or not there was a woman in her neighborhood that drove a better car than her, that had a bigger house than her, that had a better life than her. Just speak to the character in general. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, um, first of all, I knew a lot of people like Charmaine Bucco in my neighborhood growing up. And I always admired that, like not to follow the masses. She just did her own thing, you know? And, you know, um, I always felt bad that I was so hard on Artie Bucco. And I did feel bad that I was hard on uh, James. It was, it was hard for me to be that way. And, and I told David Chase, I said, can you please write something where you see why they're married? At least one episode where you go, okay, now I see what he sees. I see why he stays I see what, why she loves him just to have that. But I didn't say it that way, but I said, could you sh show them being a little more loving and her not being so hard? And then he said to me, he said, not in a nasty way in his intelligent, creative, brilliant way. He said, no, this woman really existed. This is how she was. She was relentless. There is a, there was a real Charmaine Bucco, uh, this character, this person that I knew, and that's just the way she was. And I thought about it and it made it a little easier for me, but I had given myself a little, um, a little backstory. Do you remember the scene when I say to, uh, um, Carmela, this is the, kind of a twist, um, when I said to Carmela, when you went away that summer and I slept with Tony, well. One of the best lines of the show. Well, I, I gave myself a backstory and that would drive me for uh, a stronger reason of why I would hate Tony because I kept saying to myself, but why do I hate them? They're giving us all the business. I, we need them here. Like they're, they're, the, they're bringing all the big business, right? Why would I be so nasty? Why would I do this? Why would I, I couldn't understand it. Why I was so 
angry. And what I had in mind was so that I could do it and believe it when I would get angry at James or uh, Artie Bucco is that I gave myself the backstory that really when Carmelo went away and I slept with Tony, he dumped me. I didn't dump him. And that's where I could really have an objective of why I'm so angry at him because you made me fuck around behind my best friend's back. And I thought, well, I would do it if we would be a couple. And he used me, he dumped me. And so I clung on to Artie and Edie came back and I acted like I dumped him. So that gave me what I needed to be Charmaine Bucco and hold that grudge from, from the pilot to the, to the end. And, and also that kind of like reason that I would, I loved Tony's strength and that's why I dated him. And I loved that he was a rebel. I loved that he was strong and I was younger too. I didn't know better. This is my whole, in my mind, my whole backstory. And when I got stuck with Artie, I love Artie. I love Artie. I did, yeah, well, well, well. I love it. Stuff. I know. I love it. No, but that's but, but you actually you actually just became the character. You, you, she's relentless. I'm stuck with this guy, but she made her choices, and that's the best line. She made her choice. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's true. Um, so for me, the when I went back, rebounded. I should say, not stuck. Rebound, but already it magnified his weakness to me. It magnified, because I dated him before. I had it in my mind, I dated him, bounced to Tony, and that summer I was like a big putan, I guess. So I, uh, when I went back with Artie, it really, he didn't have the strength that Tony had, but he did have a quality that I loved, that he was hardworking and honest, and, um, and he was good to me. And, he wouldn't hurt me like that. So that's what I use for me. I mean, and so Charmaine uh, became this, uh, from the day that Tony hurt her and dumped her, she just had a, a chip on her shoulder. She did. She had a chip on her shoulder and she would be embarrassed to serve him, embarrassed to serve Edie and in her own mind, because of the backstory that I said, and it would bother her that she had to go serve. And when Edie says, you know, I told her that, you know, I slept with Tony and it wasn't for me. Oh no, it was for me, but uh, he dumped me. So <laughs> you got what I wanted. And, you know, and that's, that's how the story goes for me. You know, right, right. David Chase, you know, he had a point, a really good point when he said there is a woman, because I do know people that are relentless and, would do that but I don't know I just didn't want I, I needed I needed to find I, I I could do it and I did it but I just needed to find real true that's my my job that's not David Chase's job so can't there's nothing on him he's brilliant like I love him um that was on me to find uh, uh, uh the objective and the reason for all of it I guess you did kind of have a moment where um 
you guys are both in bed and you're you're actually making him feel better about himself but then it turns upside down a little bit and he's he says something it's escaping me now crazily enough i've seen the show a thousand times but there was a great moment where you guys have it but then it turns classic david chase is he'll he'll give you that that sentimentality but yeah. then he grabs it right away um iconic character got to say it i i i don't want to be cliched about it but it's tr- there truly been a delight to watch you over the years i feel like you're a part of my personal family because I've watched the show so many times. I know your character is in and out and um, it's just the the Bucos, the stamp that you guys put on the show is just indelible. It's, and it's a treat. I know you've talked about this stuff a million times and it gets fucking old, but it's, it's nice to yeah. talk to people about it. So the Irishman, were you ever going to be De Niro's wife? Like symmetry? Like was that ever a conversation or was it always Pesci's? Oh. Okay. And how did that project happen? It was a phone call and an audition. And uh, and then after the audition, then a meeting with Marty at a hotel. That's what he does with everybody. With um, uh, Ellen Lou, Ellen Lou, the brilliant Ellen Lewis casting director. She's amazing. Uh, yeah, and then I had to meet Marty, sit with him and talk to him. And then uh, he didn't say it right there, but... Were you nervous, by the way, at that stage in your career, as far as you've come, were you nervous in that meeting? Yeah, because this is this was more nerve wracking because the auditions, the audition and you know what you got to do. And you're thinking in your mind. And I had a moment before I walked in talking to myself because I saw two of the actresses that went up there. They would. They were good competition, I'll tell you that. And um because I was in the lobby and I saw them, but they didn't see me. I saw them coming out from the meetings. But I said to myself in in that hallway, in that lobby, while I was waiting, I said, "Uh, this is real. You're going to walk up there. You're going to meet Martin Scorsese. Not Scorsese, Scorsese. And and, um, he's now basing it off who I am. And so who I am is what I have to do. And I don't want to try to be anything. And I don't want to try to jive with him on the Italian thing or do anything to push. I just want to go in, breathe, go in, sit down, meet a man. He's not a God. Well, he is a God, but meet a man and... Uh, a, a great man and he can meet a great woman and we could have a great conversation without going in all peppy perky and bursting with love and, and, and making it about him or making it about me and my work, just going as human being first, let a real conversation organically start. And I ended up being in there for almost two hours such an awesome story. And I love what you said. Like, you know, you gotta, you just gotta fucking be yourself. Yeah. He could have anybody he wants for any of these roles, right? Think about that. Like being able to have pick of the litter on any cast member on for any role and to be the one that he chooses. And it's truly, I actually genuinely believe what you said. It's because it's the people that are, that don't crumble under the pressure and it's the people that are real. And it's just, it's, it's a gotta be a great feeling. 
especially coming from where you are, because you mentioned there were two people that you saw that, you know, you're like, oh shit. And that's the relatable for me. I'm in rooms with people. I pitch ideas to big shots all the time. And I, I see the competition on stuff that I'm working on as well. And it's like, oh man, I can either drown in this or I can just go in there and talk to them. Like they're not a God, like you said, that they're just another person. And I'm just a guy with an idea uh, that I believe in. And I love it. I, I love what you said. I just wanted to capture that in a bottle. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to echo what you said. Yeah, well, you know, I learned that lesson from a Bronx tale because, and thank God De Niro was honest with me um, when I got to the first day on set. When I auditioned, I left a lot out because I wanted to just move on. But when I auditioned, she said to me, after you read your sides, drop, just drop your script look straight in the camera and tell me who you are. And that's a loaded question for me because I can't lie. I, I can't be phony. I can't, I just can't do it. It will come out really bad. And so I had a very dysfunctional life and that's my life. I'm not ashamed of it. That's who I am. That's how I got where I am. And that's what makes me. I threw that script down and I looked in the camera and I said, my name is Catherine Narducci. My younger sister is, does crack. My older sister does what she does. My father was murdered when I was 10 years old. My mother was in and out of Bellevue my whole kid life. I was homeless. And no matter what job I ever get in life, I always fantasize of being an actor. And today I am supposed to be right here in this room with you. That's what I said on my tape. So when I got the job and I got to set, uh, De Niro looked at me and he goes, you know why you're here, right? You know why you got this job? And I said, not really. He goes, because you told the truth. You were yourself, you told the truth. And I want you to just keep telling the truth when you do this movie, just keep being you and tell the truth, that's it. That's what got you here, the truth. And that stayed with me. So that's what I do, I just tell the truth. I had another question for you, but I'm nothing's gonna top what you just said. So I'm gonna thank you humbly. <laughs> this has been an amazing chat. I appreciate you so much for helping me complete this project. As you know, as we spoke, this is just a passion love letter for me. Um, and you were a huge piece of that puzzle. I'm delighted that I got to speak with you today. And I will be rooting and cheering for you, especially as it relates to the Bucos. Thank you. Thanks again to Catherine for that special chat. Here's Gino Caffarelli. Gino, thanks for being a part of this. Well, listen, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I really do. So you grew up in Queens, went to St. John's. How was your experience growing up there? A lot of people say I'm from Queens. What does that particular statement mean to you? Okay, so that's a great question because um, <clears throat> I, uh, it, it was a long process in doing a feature film that I worked on. I mean, to get to the, to the point I'm like at now as far as an artist, what Queens means to me, um, the film is about Queens, and it's basically uh, about me kind of like, you know, growing up, going to high school, starting college, 
you're cruising in your car. The, you know, social media was kind of like put gas in your car, hang out with girls, cruise the boulevard, listen to music. I lived in the American graffiti time of the 80s. So to actually do a film about how I grew up was kind of like a dream come true to, to me because it was a uh, definitely a passion project for, for me. It's called Cruise. It's uh, currently on Hulu. But yeah, Robert Siegel uh, wrote and directed it. Uh, he wrote The Wrestler. He did a film called Big Fan with Patton Oswalt where I played opposite his brother. Uh, uh, and we just uh, stayed in touch. And uh, again, I, you know, I'm going in, in, in all directions now, but be, because I moved to L.A., uh, from Queens and then went back to do a movie about Queens is like kind of story on the story in itself and that's how Robert Siegel found me but he was the writer director I was a producer on it, it was inspired by me growing up in Queens in Whitestone Flushing uh, and Bayside which my parents were in Bayside they just moved and bought a house in Great Neck um, so I'm like Queens all my life but I spent some time here in Los Angeles great time here in Los Angeles I love LA Flushing is home of the U.S. Open. U.S. Open. And uh, a home with the, uh, the New York Mets, who, uh, who I adore, but uh, we're always getting slapped in the face, you know. <laughs> they just lost Beltron, or they, you know, they get parted ways with Beltron, and now they're looking to find a new manager right before spring training. Because of the cheating scandal, too? Yeah, because of the whole uh, yeah, Astro scandal and stuff. It's a mess, man. Yeah, it's crazy, but it's, it's all good. I'm still a Mets fan, so Flushing, Queens... Uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in a, in a true Italian background, you know, my, my, my mom and dad, uh, you know, are from Italy. They met in Italy. They met the same town, city, so to be, you know, they, they, they made that route and found themselves in New York and in Queens. I, I you know, I wouldn't want it any other way growing up on the streets of like Queens when it was just like cool to hang out on a stoop and, you know, play stoop ball and it was amazing. So to quote Tony Soprano, uh, what part of the boot are your parents from? You know, it's funny that you say that because somehow, some way, because of the show, The Sopranos, I know, I think David Chase might be from the same, like, section in Italy because I think they kind of mentioned it. Tony mentioned it in the church with Meadow. I know, I don't know the episode. Probably the first one. It was, I think he was showing her the church and the Italians built it and... I think, and I'm wearing, you know, I'm wearing a hoodie from the city that my parents are from. It's Potenza. Potenza. Uh, but they're from a small town called Pietra Pertosa, which is uh, maybe 40 minutes away from Potenza. But the city is, is Potenza. Uh, and I think somehow David Chase's family is from the region of Basilicata. Uh, I know that Francis Ford Coppola is from that region, Basilicata. So... Uh, being that I heard like certain filmmakers and, and talent are from like that area in Italy and their families there, it's kind of kind of wild, you know. Because I speak fluent Italian, and you know um, that you know true first generation, you know Italian growing up in New York. If they're both from the same area, man, there's definitely something in the water over there. Well, growing up, like my legal name, and and I'll say it, my legal name is Egidio. and you know when I moved here in L.A., they want not that they wanted me to change it. Actually, somebody told me to. He was, he was one of the owners downstairs in one of the bars. He said, you should keep that name, EGDO, because it sounds like, uh, you know, like, you know how Benicio? I said, but you know how many teachers botched my name in school? It gives you a complex, man. But yeah, I, every time they stopped and were reading, like, because back then you had, like, a sheet in front of you for attendance. Like, it was, like, the 70s and 80s. They would, they would stop at my name, and I would raise my hand. They'd say, how do you pronounce that? i say, EGDO. But they just call me Gino. It didn't, you know, it doesn't, Gino does, Egidio doesn't mean Gino, just Gino stuck. 
And so I kind of like use Gino Caffarelli as the actor name, but it, I know it sounds very ethnic, but it'd be hard to go back to like try and say, all right, just call me Egidio now. But he had a good point, you know, Benicio del Toro, Egidio Caffarelli. It could, you know, it could, could still work. Who knows? What does it mean? Don't know what it means, but I know oh. that the, I know that there's a Saint Egidio. I think he's the uh, the saint of uh, fever, like you know, being sick or something. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm true blue. Well, for you know, cento per cento italiano, parli italiano, and I just came back from Italy in October. I went to see my cousins and aunts and uncles. But you know, like anything, time goes by, and like you know, population is diminishing, and you know, your ancestors and your roots is kind of like. But I still stick to it. And I'd love to like make it to Italy every year. So we, again, you asking me part of the boot. The boot is uh, Potenza, and I and I and I and I love the culture, and I love being Italian American, and being an Italian American artist. Where sometimes we kind of get, you know, not sometimes we get trapped in a box, and you know, we're more we're more than that. Does that make you upset? It doesn't make me upset. It just, um, you know, with every. But you're associated with projects like The Sopranos, The Godfathers. Is that annoying? No, it, well, it, uh, when you say annoying, it's not like, um, like you can't just like, you know, put on a leather jacket and put on a suit and say, I want to be an actor. Like you, you have to, you know, want to, want to train and, and, and really the, there's beautiful moments in, in an actor. Like, you know, you, you, it's, it's not something that you could, it just like, oh, one day I'm just going to wake up and be an actor. So when you get pulled into a certain like, kind of like sub genre subculture or cultural kind of like uh you know genre and you know the the gangster genre is always going to be around right so because you know the you know there was the uh italian american you know history you know with gangsters um yeah i i get it but it's like they they put you in that box and they'll only kind of call you in for that stuff like I don't know if I'd be playing like a, a mechanic in who li- who lives in idaho hey listen if he was a new york character like a character he moved to idaho you could play a mechanic like so there's not like i don't like to put labels on stuff i just yeah. you know if you're you know like if you're meant for, if you're meant for the part you're meant for the part like i just i like it's like double-sided in catch 22 it's like a little hypocritical where i love latino actors and i love working with all type of all types of ethnicities i want all ethnic uh you know uh artists to like thrive also but, you know, like if I, you know, I, I don't think I'd be able to go in and read for like a Cuban role. I think it's kind of like they'd be like, well, you're Italian. But mm-hmm. that's, that, that's what gets me mad. Gotcha. No, no, makes you sense. You know, Latino actors can read and read and have had parts that played, you know, Italian Americans and, uh, you know, sometimes vice versa. We won't get called in for that. So that's what the, not the angry part where it's not fair. It's like, hey, you know what? Like, you know, like friends of mine, like uh, 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 example, Catherine Arducci, like she's a fantastic actor and she's my best friend, you know, call her in for a Latin role, you know, like, you know, she, she's an artist, she's an actor. Like we all want to play all different types of people. I love that, you know, other, other people want to play other people and it should be fair, uh, you know, level, level playing field across you know we're artists and let's let's create and make great characters but we could all do it right agent grosso on the show uh the actor frank pando who played him he's cuban the one thing i would say about the mafia in cinema and tv though is that there are a lot of organized crime ethnic organized crime groups but there's nothing quite like the italians and It'll never resonate, and none of the other subcultures will resonate quite like the Italian subculture does. And for whatever reason, I think 
I think that's a good thing. Do if you're going to do something in that genre, whether it be TV or film, it better be. A, could you curse on this? Yeah, yeah. It's a Sopranos podcast. You know, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna be in a TV genre or a film genre that's gonna have an Italian background, it better be a fucking good show or good film. Like, there's no fucking room for fucking around. Like that that that's how I believe. You you just can't take that genre and say, hey, we're gonna make that. Like, it's got to be incredible. Like, it just because there's so many stories out there. But the, you know, if you tell it the right way, you, like there'll never be a, like another TV show like The Sopranos. I mean, maybe you might be able to do something different, but it's just like, you know, because uh, artists worked on that. Okay, so it had an Italian American background. Amazing, great. But they were all artists. Gandolfini, Falco, like uh, all these actors were true trained actors. Mike, Michael Imperioli, who I, you know, he had an acting school called Studio Dante in Manhattan. I think it was 2002. He's an artist. He's an actor. Like these guys, you know, you know, to get to that level of like getting that show, they earned it to get there because, you know, I don't think we'll ever see another show like that. But there's great shows out there, but it's hard to keep up with all this content. You don't have to be nice. There's... Nothing else like it out there. What you said is actually super accurate. If you're going to do something in this genre, you better fucking bring it. And if you're going to get in the arena with those guys, it's got to be, it's never going to be equivalent, but it's got to rise up to a level worthy of respect. Yes. And that's hard to do. It's very, it's very, very hard to do. But I like, again, like, you know, if, if you know, Scorsese is going to have a gangster element, it's an Italian American, it, be, it better be a damn good fucking movie. Like, Goodfellas was a damn good movie. Yeah, it, maybe it didn't win Best Picture from back then. I think Dances with Wolves won, but. Mm, it's politics more than well, anything. Exactly. But, but, like, what has stood the test of time? Like, the master, master of cinema, you know, like, I'm just staring at the billboard across the street for the Irishman. Like, you know, even, you know, a, a no-line a character, you know, Mayor Frank Rizzo from, it was a real guy, to get called from the casting director or to, to get to audition for the film itself. You're jumping the gun on all my questions, man. I know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like... I'm gonna ask you about The Irishman, but I want to rewind a second and echo something that you just said about how, what stands the test of time. I was talking about this with somebody. The Rocky song, Gonna Fly Now, was nominated for an Oscar and it did not win. And I guarantee you right now that if you ask anybody in our circle, my circle, your circle, any Nordov, Sormal sort of film fan circle, everybody will be able to hum the Gonna Fly Now song, but they will not even be able to tell you what won the Oscar that year. What stands the test of time. Right, exactly. So... Your first acting credit was for A Bronx Tale. How'd that come about? Well, you know, that was, um, again, it was 19, I believe it was 1992, 91. You know, I was going to college, but at the same time I was working. I think I was waiting tables, going to college. I was doing a few jobs. But I found out that De Niro was shooting A Bronx Tale in Queens. They shot it in Astoria, but they, it, looked like, it looked like the Bronx. And I would go to the set like every day, kind of like just chill out and just watch them film. And I'm like, I, you know, I wasn't in the unit, I wasn't a SAG, you know, but I always, I always wanted to pursue acting. And again, I still felt I was a kid then. Um, I just kind of made my way and started like talking to some people and they, they had a big extra scene, uh, scene uh, at the boxing match. Do you remember that scene where uh, Sonny's guys come upstairs to ask, 
De Niro's character and uh, Lilo's character to come downstairs. I, I was right behind them as a 60s Pepsi vendor background. And I didn't know if I, I didn't know if it was going to make the cut or if it wasn't. I didn't know where the, where the camera was. I wasn't an experienced filmmaker at the time, so I'm like, I was just happy to be there. So I was miming and in certain shots, like saying Pepsi here, Pepsi, and I was kind of again because we didn't have smartphones back then. I wish I had a picture of that because I had a funny hat on. It was a Pepsi hat, and I had one of those old school stands that like stood in front of you with the Pepsi inside it. And I was just like behind De Niro watching De Niro de- direct the film. And I was, I was in awe. Like I was like, this is awesome. Which then fast forwarded 15 years later, he cast me in The Good Shepherd and I had to go in and read for him. So everything kind of ha- like happens for a reason, which is totally it's amazing. So I was an extra. So I was, an, and I'm, a, I'm not ashamed to say I was an extra in a Bronx tale, but it's like, it's like my it was, that was a professional acting job for me because I was like you know in character acting like I was a '60s you know Pepsi vendor, you know just like kind of like. And is your scene in the movie? No, it didn't make it okay. didn't make the cut. But I didn't you know. But people all know that. But but again because you know just the experience alone was incredible. Sure. So you know the kind kind of like, like that I got a taste of that. Like I'm like I know I can do this if I really focus on it. You act and produce. How'd you get on this career path? Did it start in college or did something happen somewhere along the way? It's funny. I took, I, I, I was a, uh, it's wild. In high school, I was pa- uh, part of the National Honor Society. So if you look in the yearbook that year in 1987, there's all these kind of like nerdy guys and then it's like cool, like, you know, you know, uh, you, you know I'm like at the end of uh, taking a picture with these guys. And, and I was in, you would never think, like I was very blue collar and very kind of like rough around the edges, but I was always also very good in school. And I did very well in high school, which got me good grades and got me into the pharmacy program in St. John's. And then I took pharmacy for two years. And I was like, no, nah, I can't do this. I knew I always wanted to act or be a filmmaker and, you know, but I was a natural born like salesperson. Like I would, I could sell you not anything. I would always sell something that I believed in. So I said, let me switch my pharmacy career. I can't go like, like you know, I can't tell my parents I want to go to like film school. I really wanted to go to NYU as a filmmaker, you know, like, yeah. but it just, it's not that they didn't, they didn't understand it. I'm like, you know, it wouldn't be like I was conforming. I'm like, oh, I'll go to college and take pharmacy and I'll be a pharmacist. I'm like, most people do. Yeah. And like, like I got tired of conforming to that. And I would think back now that I think of it, I like my path was like my path because I knew what I wanted to do. And like, even if it seemed like, you know, it's like untouchable, it is touchable. So I went from like, all right, I'll get my business degree at St. John's. But, and I'm a salesperson and I'll go to college and I'll be like on a 10 year program at St. John's, even though I was in an honor program from high school, like I was a smart kid, but I sucked at standardized tests. So I just kind of like stayed in Queens at St. John's and got my business degree while I was selling cars, waiting tables. Uh, and again, natural born salesperson, but always, I, I don't shovel shit. I, I, you know. I don't overpromise under a chief type of guy. I'm just like real. I play it real. This is what it is. And um, that was just, I was like, wait, producing. So I started, while I was selling cars and, and being in college at St. John's, I was uh, producing plays in Queens at, uh, by LaGuardia Airport. Uh, that was like 1993. So just right around the same thing, like Bronx style, I got a taste. And I'm like, oh, I want to start producing plays. That's, you know, 
you know, I'm going to start doing plays. We started doing murder mysteries with, you know, two two of my uh, uh, best friends. That uh, How do you make money doing that? It was, well, we got paid uh, to produce the show. Like, we linked up with, like, someone that wanted. A financier. Yeah, well, not even a financier. The they, they, they knew the people that ran the dinner section at the hotel. So I was like, we'll do, like, shows, go to dinner first and go see a play and combine a ticket. Like, but I network, I kind of, like, networked that deal because while I was a waiter and going to St. John's, I met these guys that had a resort in the Catskills. And I wind up uh, saying, all right, well, let's let's put up like a murder mystery about, uh, and it, it was, again, about a Don, and his name was Don Potenza, who went up there to, to, to get married with his, with, his, with, his, with his wife, and uh, someone dies. It was like, it was a, it was a mob-style, uh, you know, murder mystery. And it did really well for, for these guys. I proved myself as a producer, and I was like, I could do these shows in Queens. And then we linked up and we started doing like plays, uh, you know, like we did Played Against Sam. We did a female version of the Yacht Couple. It was pretty cool. Like, and like it all kind of like started coming together. But then I started going in different directions. I was like, oh, conforming, got to get married, you know. What did you learn from that experience? Working with talent? Yeah, just like, you know, like. Assembling stuff? Yeah, it's assembling. That's the that's the the exact word. Assembling, like you know, I, I believe now you don't have to know how to do it. Just believe you're going to do it, and just it'll find a way. You know, it, it'll find it'll find a way. The Sopranos was your first TV credit, according to IMDb. How did it come about? Well, again, another fantastic way of how things happen. So I found out about the show. That, so the show started in like 99, right? 98, 99. I was working for uh, a telecom company uh, as an outside salesperson. And while I was bouncing around Manhattan to like audition for like, you know, stuff. I didn't have an agent really, but I was working with someone in New York. It was, it was a management company. But it was a one-guy operation. And I heard the show was going on. I heard all my like actor friends. And at the time, I don't think I was taking my acting too seriously. I was like conforming, have a job. I was married. I was like, okay, uh, but I heard about the show. So all my true like actor friends who said they were, you know, actors were going in for this show. And I'm like, well, why, why can't I go in for this show? I'm going to try it. So this was in 99. This was like, a, well, this is, yeah, they were going in for the show. Like, but again, the opportunity didn't come. I didn't have the right age. Well, not even an agent. I didn't have really anyone working with me. I was like, you know, I did murder mysteries and, you know, I was an extra in a Bronx tale, but you know, like I want to read for like this show, which I knew before it would really take off like it did, just heard about the show. So it took me from when the show started to about like, I think, oh, two is when it kind of like, oh, like started going down where I found some, some manager that was going to work with me and submitted me and I went in. But like a lot of all of my friends were like going in for the show, like 10 times, 12. And I heard all these horror stories like, oh man, I, I, I went in for like 12 times. Like I didn't even go in for it once. I just wanted the opportunity opportunity to go read for the show so your first opportunity was in season five you didn't read before that no no that was the first yes yeah, season five excuse me season five was the year that i read for the show for the first time and like i like i did i maybe he's you know that he would be submitting me but i never got to read for the show so i'm like if i gotta go in for this show that's doing tremendously well for hbo and I, you know, read about David Chase, you know, back then again, newspaper like that, this, this guy who created this show and the, in the writing behind it. And I'm like, I just knew, I'm like, I want to, I want to like 
get on it for those reasons. Gandolfini, who was a great character actor, I worked with him on Mr. Wonderful. I was a PA in like 1990. He was in that movie, Mr. Wonderful, with Matt Dillon and Annabella Sciorra. And I, that's when I kind of like saw him on a set. But I always knew he was an actor, actor. So like I knew the caliber of actors that are on that show. Edie Falco did a movie, a movie called Laws of Gravity. Um, and I, you know, I could see her acting. So I knew there was like, they were actors like working on the show. It was just like, oh, we're going to be a cool, a cool mob style show. So I said, I got to be in my A game. So I finally get an audition. And I originally didn't read for Vinnie Pitts. The character that I read for, and I remember, it was Terry Doria was the character. And the sides that I got, again, it's my first professional audition, but again, I took it very, again, very, very, very serious. I'm like, if I'm going to go in, I got to take a risk or do something different in that room. Were you watching the show? Like, were you current? Was it appointment television? There'll never be a show that's going to gather people like on a Sunday like this show did. It'll never happen again. Like, that's really, if you think about it, people looked forward to, like, Sunday sitting around. So it reminded me, like, the days of, like, sitting around and watching Dallas or, like, one of those intense shows, like, Who Shot JR, right? Like, it was that show. Like, what, like, what show after that brought, like, people together? I don't know. Like, I, you know, and again, you don't have to be Italian. Like, it was just every Sunday, families just got together, ate, and watched a great show. Like, what's wrong with that? That's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. So I get the audition and I, I read these sides and I'm like, well, what am I going to do different? So, I mean, I knew that George Ann Walken because I was Cedar Credits and, and Sheila Jaffe were the casting directors. So um, I, it was George Ann, I, uh, I believe, that read me because I think Sheila Jaffe at the time was in an L.A. at the time. or but So she's the one that read me. So, and I knew that she was Walken's wife. And I just, I knew like all the background because I'm a cinephile and like from casting director to grip, uh, you know, to, you know, you have to kind of like just no, I, I, I love, I love it, but I'm kind of like very, you know, I like got almost like a photographic memory. I just remember, remember things like stuff like that. So she's the casting director and, um, I'm like, I got to do something different. This scene, the sides were, and you'll remember it because, you know, you know, the show inside and out. It was, it was where they were chasing the security guard down the Vespa episode where they was chasing him down. And the guy goes, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shove this up your ass if you don't tell me, you know, where or whatever. They were chasing him down. That was Terry Doria. He was like more, you know, muscular, like, you know, a muscle with another guy. So I went in for, I went in for that role, but the scene was pretty cool where you like, you know, you're like, you know, if you don't tell me, you know, who, where this guy, whatever I, what it was, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, shove this up your ass. So. I'm like, well, I got to do something different. So I crack a broomstick in my apartment where I was living, and I tape it up. I put black tape around it, and I keep it in my back pocket. So now I'm, I'm going down to Silver Cup to go read. Well, I, I actually first, the initial audition was to go into the city and read for Georgia and Walken, and I go in, and it was like a quick, I don't even think it was that scene. It was just like a quick audition, and then got called back to go to Silver Cup Studios. And uh, I, I said, I got to do something. I got to do something different. So I tape while I'm at home, you know, like studying and reading my sides and say, how do I do this different? Because you got to stand out. You got to take kind of like a risk, do something totally like offbeat, whatever comes. You know, so I came more. They got to remember you. Yeah, they, exactly. So I was like, I know what I'm going to do. And I, and I put tape around the stick because the scene says, if you don't tell me, this stick is going up your ass. So I'm like, okay. So I have the stick in my back pocket. I go to, to Silver Cup Studios and um, I see other actors that I kind of know. 
uh, through the circuit. And, like, they all want to talk and, like, joke around. I'm like, you know, we could talk after, you know. Uh, and like they're like reading their sides, but like they're having fun almost. It's like I, I went out. I'm like, uh, I mean, you, you want they like you want to read sides. I don't mind reading when an actor. It's my first first time reading for a professional like audition, and it's like the director of the episodes in it. David Chase is in there. Terry Winter was in there. Like they were like, I was like at Georgian. I was reading for like eight people. It was like, and I didn't know it was eight people because when I went in the room, I'm like, oh shit, like a big room. I'm like oh god, I got to be on. So Georgian goes, are you ready? And I was like, cool. So she's reading with me and they're all sitting on a couch. And it seems foggy to me now because that's what it felt like. And she was set, you know, she was reading these sides and she's like, okay, thank you. And I'm like, wait a second. Like the whole scene about the, st- the, 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 you know, the nightstick going up his ass, she totally iced it off the audition. And I'm walking towards the door and I stop and I go, Georgian, there's like more stuff. She's going, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're right. And she was looking down at the sides. Like, I don't even think she'll remember this if she hears this, but this is what happened. And I go back and I finish the scene. And it comes up to the part where it says, if you don't tell me what's going on, I'm going to stick this up your ass. I pulled the stick out of my back pocket and I spit on it. Now, a real fucking wise guy, like demented, like crazy, like I just thought of a few of these bad guys back in the day that existed, would have done that. So I spit on it and I go, it's going to go right up your fucking ass. Like with like, and it was like kind of whoa, like like I knew that like like that was like a risk, and got me got me the job on the show, but not as not as Terry Doria. They said they 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 wrote something. Uh, it was Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess that wrote the episode. That like they wrote something, and it's it, it, it's part of the Gervasi you know uh, crew, and it's Vincent Pizzatoro. So I'm like, oh shit, like I read for the show once, like I fucking booked, and I'm like, well, I'm on the show. Like, I'm going to get called back and I'm going to do more episodes. And that didn't happen. I don't know why, but I was like a cool name and everything. I was like, great name, which I was like, so I was like, I thought I was in, but like the storyline never went anywhere. I'm like, I don't know why. But then, then it was from what I heard, they weren't working as writers on the show anymore. Rob, you know, Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess. I was like, shit. So I was like, oh man, I, you know, uh, you know, I wish they would have, uh, you know, kind of brought back that character or like David or somebody would have just wrote it in just to work like again, another, because it was an incredible experience. But the amazing experience about it is that um, even though, you know, they, they wound up taking the, I guess, lines out from the character that I played, the opening shot of that episode, you know, season, what was it, season five, episode 10. Mm-hmm. You hear the dock, the little cold cuts, the little 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 the dock. Uh, you're at the uh, the dock, and and you see the tugboat in the back, and it goes. And I'm sitting on a stool, and I'm smoking, and I'm like, that was like cinema to me. So okay, I don't I don't give a fuck that I didn't have any lines, and I, I always wanted like smoke to come out of my mouth, like cool. It was just coming spraying out, waiting for those vespers, and I'm like, okay, so so what? But I'm like, that got me my sad card, and it was directed by. Mike Figgis, and I loved leaving Las Vegas. And I'm like, what? I stood there behind the, the, the camera with Mike Figgis all day to do that scene. To me, again, as an actor and as a filmmaker, to, to be with the, the guys like that, I was like, he did leave in Las Vegas, like Nicolas Cage and, uh, you know. Incredible. I was like, come on. So, and again, all these weird coincidental things happened. He had the same birthday as I, which is crazy. When's your birthday? February 28th. 
So moral of the story is like, in order to even get that, like I read for the show once and, uh, and I, it was your first booking ever. My first booking. I was like through the roof. I was like, oh shit. Like I was wanting my sad card and, uh, I wind up getting my sad card through the Sopranos. So like, like Sopranos has a special, you know, a special place in my heart. Uh, again, they, you know, it's not like, uh, I gotta say to people, I was on the Sopranos. I never really, not that I don't really talk about it. But I thought this was a perfect opportunity to let Soprano fans know that that's how that's how it went down, and I love that how it went down. It's got a there's a story behind it because people like stories, you know. And if you tell you know a, a fun story, they remember you through your stories, and that was a great story. A hundred percent, and everybody that was a part of the show, no matter how big or how small, a part of this project that will come on, and it's because you were a part of the fabric, the quilt that is the Sopranos. And everybody has an amazing story. Yeah, and and and, and, di- and really didn't know like they like people don't know like oh you went in for an audition you got the surprise what you going for like you know ten times whatever no like I said I, I tell people they're like they're like astonished so one time first booking ever got your SAG card yes and it also gave me uh, confidence and inspiration to be like wait a second. I went in once, I, I'm reading from one of the great like TV writer creators, David Chase, and then Terry Winter's in there too and winds up doing a bunch of stuff on HBO and a, a great writer as well, and Mike Figgis and all, everyone, wh- whoever was in that room, I, you know, I know there was like eight people in there, I remember. It was such, I guess, a, such like, a, I guess a consensus like with people with that show because it was so amazing. So again, I, uh, it gave me confidence. I was like, wait a second, I think maybe I can do this acting thing. You know, I, I know I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid and when I was like going to high school uh, I said maybe this could be a a professional thing so it inspired me and gave me a lot of courage and confidence to go on to you know grinning and bearing a lot of audition like you know letdowns but then also building relationships and then working on on other stuff like I got you know to to get a film done that was you know based on me growing up in Queens and just and and constantly you know working around great actors and uh, I want to keep on doing that like I'm excited about a couple of projects that are coming out your character was, of course, where he fits into the Soprano landscape, was a witness to the Joey Peeps murder pulled off by Tony Blundetto. How did being on the show influence your career? Well, you know, it's funny because that storyline is like Joey Peeps, which was, who was, it was played by Joe Maruzzo, who I did not know then. Like, I didn't know. And um, he was... He had, uh, he, he knew Catherine Nardu. They were like, they were at the actor's studio, but I didn't know Joe when he was doing The Sopranos. So again, how beautiful and stories life can be full circle years later. He's a great playwright and a great actor. And um, I went to the actor's studio to see Joe and Catherine Arducci uh, do their thing at the actor's studio. And I'm like, you know, I still, you know, building the courage to want to maybe kind of like read for the studio because that, that would be, that was always an accomplishment as my, you know, of mine that I wanted to do as an actor. So I may still have, you know, do it. But I went to see them do their thing. And I'm like, wow, Joe's a great actor. And he indirectly kind of like pitched me a play that he wrote. And I'm like, whoa, uh, I, I love it. It's about a bricklayer. Like, oh, my dad was a bricklayer. Uh, yeah, so. You shot that with Narducci, Yes, yeah, so right? I directed that. Oh, oh, you saw it? Yeah, I watched it. I over-prepared for my interviews, man. Yeah, I direct, that was my first directing thing a couple of years back. I didn't, I didn't know Joe when he was doing Joey Peep. So morally, like, like, like you know, um, the storyline in Sopranos was about Joey Peep's played by Joe Maruzzo. Fast forward, like, years later, like, um, 
great actor, a great playwright. I do a short that I put together and produced, and uh, Catherine's my best friend, and she's a fantastic actor. I'm like, Joel's great. And he, uh, he's like, well, why don't you play the bricklayer? You're an actor. I go, no, 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 it's your story. You wrote it. You did it as a play. Let's do it as a short. And we do this short, and uh, it's beautiful. Um, and uh, it just fu- comes full circle. I'm like, wait, well, he was Joey Peeps on Sopranos. So I'm like, the, the fact that, like, we didn't know each other then, but we would kind of like, you know. You guys ended up working together. Well, exactly, but, but but organically, and because it was it was supposed to be that way, not because I was supposed to meet Joe back in the Soprano days. It's it's, it's wild, like, you know. And again, it's a, the community, the acting community is kind of like a small world, and the filmmaking community, too, is a small world. If you re- really kind of like really look at it, it becomes like small. But I'm really, I'm really proud of that film. Catherine's fantastic. Joe's fantastic in it. He wrote it, and it's just a beautiful piece. It's on YouTube, right? I, you know, I didn't really get it out there. Like, I got it out there at festivals. It won a couple of great awards. Some, like, it won an audience award at Vision Fest. Like, I like, it's a great piece of art. You know, it's, it runs a little long as a short, but it's like almost 20 minutes, but it's beautiful. I mean, it was very hard to capture two people in a bar talking and not, you know, and not, uh, you know, break away because people get bored very quickly. But every everything I hear about the film when people see it, you know, whether it's in a, at a festival or I've seen it on a small screen that I've sent, they said to, to keep someone's attention for like 20 minutes, you want to know who these two, these two people are. And uh, that was a big challenge. And uh, it, it's just uh, I'm very proud of it. It's beautiful. It is very well thank done. you thank you so much i didn't well i didn't know i didn't know that you i didn't know i watched it for joey peeps interview oh that's fantastic yeah did he plug me and say he uh, gino didn't make no he talked about himself and that's okay joe and i love you <laughs> you're a true artist and a great writer and a great actor and, and we're really proud of uh i'm joking of course we're very proud of that film any uh experiences or encounters with david chase yes world series 2000 I, um, this is before I even read for the show, but, uh, I did a song about the Yankees, even though I was a, a Met fan with two other guys and it was called how you doing Yankees. And, uh, we were like the mascots. It was on the radio. It was like a big thing, like in 1999 through 01, this Yankee song that we did. And, uh, I, I wound up again, hustling my sales strategy to get us to this parade because we were like these mascots. They weren't just going to hand us like, you know, uh, passes to go down to, to celebrate with the Yankees was like a tough ticket to get, but somehow I got it. There's, that's another story in itself. But I, I wind up getting these tickets and we go there and like, it's the hottest, again, it's 99, 2000. So it's just at its peak, right? People are like, whoa, where did this show come from? And I saw him walk in with his wife and a few other people like, oh shit, it's David Chase. And then Michael Imperioli was there. I have a picture of Imperioli with a Yankee jacket on. I'm sorry, Mets. Uh, I have a picture with David Chase and his wife. Um, and I was just like, kind of like, I was starstruck, like with David Chase. I'm like, uh, I was like 2000, I guess only 20, it's like 20 years ago because, and then eventually I wound up reading for the show, like seeing him again. So again, everything happens for a reason. It's not, it's not because I I ran into him and said, Hey David, I just wanted to say hello. I said, I love the show. I just took a picture with him. I wasn't pitching him or anything like that. And then fast forward, like, and I bet you he didn't remember me when I went into the room that I met him at the world series party. A ticket tape parade in lower manhattan in 2000 when the yankees won he's not he didn't remember me from that but it was cool to, so that was my first interaction with david chase again another unique story within itself and that's i love i love stories isn't the universe a crazy place how you have an encounter with somebody who's show you're on later. Yeah, well, yeah, cause, and the same thing is happening while I'm here in L.A., while I'm here. Like, it's it's weird. Like, I went to uh, the uh, Netflix uh, party yesterday for the SAG Awards, and uh, I, I went to that, and because I was here, uh, 
uh, for a film. They were doing a screening of a film I was in. So I happened to be here and happened to go, you know, thank you, Netflix. I had such an amazing time at the party yesterday because it was like a little kid in the candy store. It was like the top of the top, like filmmakers and actors in a room. Like, and I was like, wow, like, like I'm like, I'm supposed to be here. Like, cause like, you know, that's what I always dreamed as a kid. Like, you know, the whole Hollywood thing is, is, is special to me only because I love cinema so much. And a show like The Sopranos was like cinema every week. I heard that Robert De Niro handpicked you for a role in a movie. What's the story there? Again, another one. Like, uh, so that was the year before I was actually thinking about moving to LA. So <clears throat> I, uh, it was, that was 2005. So uh, I was work again, I was working at the time as a stand-in. And I could say it, I was working as a stand-in for Artie Lang. On a, on a film called Beer League, and uh, they got they called me to do they called me to do standing work for Artie Lang. I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I want to do standing work, but it was a SAG it was a SAG job. So I'm like, what? Well, I'm going to be on a set. So I'm like, fast forward, I take the job, I take the job. But at the same time, I'm going on you know all these auditions and stuff like that. Uh, so it was like an off day where I was like a stand-in for Artie, and I got called in um, again through somebody who was submitting me, and winds up us uh, getting, I guess, just a picture and a resume because it's still '05. I don't even think I had a reel at that point uh, to call in and go read for Sigdi Miguel uh, and Amanda Mackey, and uh, and I go in and read for them, and then fast forward, I have to go in and read for Robert De Niro. They're doing a movie called The Good Shepherd. So I go, I go in and I read for the casting directors, and I get called in to go read for Robert De Niro. I'm like, holy shit now. Like, it's like, all right, so Bronx Tale was like 92, 93, so I'm like, this is 12 years later, right? So like 12, yeah. And I'm like, oh, shit, like, I'm not going to go in there and say, I worked on a Bronx Tale. I'm like, no, I'm just going to go in there and do the work. So it's a very kind of like, like, like a weird scene. Like, there's really no acting. But I was like, all you're doing is like escorting one person from the, I'm escorting Matt Damon's character to Joe Pesci's character. Now, Joe Pesci's doing a cameo in The Good Shepherd, and it's one of Joe Pesci's guys. And I'm like, when I found that out, I'm like, holy shit. I know that a lot of people are going in for that. I'm going to fight for that. And they're like, oh, well, Robert De Niro's directing. Hold on. De Niro's directing. Uh, Joe Pesci's in the scene, and Matt, da- and Matt Damon's the lead, and you're going to be working with De Niro as the director, Matt Damon, and Joe Pesci as actors. I'm like, oh, shit. So I wind up going into read for De Niro. Because you always have to read for him, because he was directing the film, of course, and he just came up from a Bronx tale. But it's a totally different genre. It's about it's about the birth uh, of the the CIA, and um, I'm at the audition. And again, before I go into any room, before I go into the audition, I go into the into the uh, bathroom and I wash my face, kind of like I don't do kind of like a moment in the mirror, but it, it's kind of like that, just to you know get my mind into like you know going in and and then doing my best. And I, and I standing in front of Robert. Yeah, Carroll. yeah, I, I, and and he walks in the bathroom while I'm washing my face, and I'm not going to say anything because I'm going to be going in the room in like a minute. I'm just not going to say nothing. Like he's watching, I'm not, I'm not saying nothing, and I'm just going to go in because normally somebody again, I know I've heard stories like you know go in and do your work, don't bother him in the bathroom. I'm like I'm not going to do that. You know, people bothered him on set. I'm like I'm in the bathroom now. I'm going to be like oh, I'm coming in in a minute to read for you. I'm like just don't say anything. Watch your face. You're going to see him in like a minute. Go do your thing, and that's what I did. He looked at me, and I didn't say anything. And I was like, all right, cool. And I, get, I go in to read, and they put, they mic me. They put a mic on, and Sig's in there. I, mean, I don't know if Amanda was in there, uh, but Sig was in there. Oh, she was in there. Yeah, she was in there, because I knew it was two of them. And they put the mic on me. And I go in and do my thing, and kind of like, it was like, real, it was kind of quick. And I do my thing, and I just walk out, but I forgot 
the mic, the microphone, like the little thing. And he, he taps me on the shoulder as I'm leaving the door. He goes, ah, you got to bring that back. 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 You know, classic like De Niro, but in his De Niro way. And I was like, oh, shit, I feel like an asshole. Like, you know, that they, 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 I, you know we're going to walk out the microphone. But I was like, but it was very natural and very kind of like real. And there was a lot of guys in the waiting room. Okay, and I'm sure they were looking still the day before, so I'm like, uh, and I get the call, and I find out that I booked it. And I'm like a kid in a candy store, and I get the call while I'm a stand-in on the movie Beer League that I'm working on. And I, I remember it specifically because I was like on a break, and I got the call, and I was like by the uh, tennis court uh, where we were shooting, and I'm like jumping up there. I'm like, yes, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be directed by De Niro, and Joe Pesci's in the scene, and Matt Damon's in the scene. And I'm like, so... Again, another story behind a story behind a story. Like I, you know, kind of, uh, I'm doing stand-in work, which again, I didn't care. And then I get called in and I'm like, all right, so like next week I want to be directed by Robert De Niro and The Good Shepherd. I'm going to do a scene with Matt Damon and Joe Pesci. So we wind up shooting a couple of scenes. It's all dialogue, like two or three scenes. And then one of the, and a few of the scenes wind up on the cutting room floor as usual. But the experience to be on the set was incredible. It was like, you know, it was like classic. That can go on for another half hour. Moral of the story, don't say anything in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. No, seriously. I didn't, you know, because I didn't want to be like, take, play you cool. Like, it's like, it's all good. It's all going to work out. Because people over kind of overreact and they step boundaries and stuff. It's like, well, you know, take it easy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a fighter story too. And it's so wild because I ran into David O. Russell yesterday at the Netflix party. And he like, he, I haven't seen him in a few years. It was like a, a, a time between where he was like going about to do a movie. I think it was going to be about to do the fighter. And then he did the fighter. And then I, I wind up going to the premiere, uh, premiere, but, uh, he winds up doing the movie and then all these other, and then I just lose touch. I moved to New York. I moved back to New York and they did all these great films. And like, uh, he, he saw me yesterday. And he, he's like, Hey, cause he saw me in a film called big fan that was written, directed by Robert Siegel, who I did cruise with. And, uh, he was a juror at some festival and he, uh, he loved the film. So I just thanked him. I wanted to thank him because I never thanked him in person. I, he sent me an email a while back, but, um, they were doing reshoots here in LA and I was living in LA. And a friend of mine, uh, Matt Musio, he referred me to, uh, to, to the people that were doing the fighter and they wind up doing these reshoots and it's a SAG job. And like, I don't know the extent of the, um, the scene, but it was a scene like me running, uh, like yelling at like Christian Bale and, uh, and, uh, Mark Wahlberg when they were running through the streets of Philly. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. But the reshoots were so, so long after they shot the film, like a year after, I think Christian Bale gained his weight back or something because he was real skinny for that role. And he, I think if you look at the film, he's jogging with a hoodie on, but you can't really tell. But it winds up getting cut out. But it was a principal, like it was a, considered a principal role because I got paid as a principal actor, you know. Um, but again, I didn't care. I was like, I was like, I knew that David, you know, he, he did Spanking the Monkey and then he did Huckabees and, you know, he's a great filmmaker. So I just kind of knew, you know, so I was like, I didn't care. I was like, all right, they cut it out, but big deal. I worked on that. And that's why I, I don't want to skew away from what The Sopranos was. The Sopranos was a film, again, like, it's, you know, I don't want to be redundant, but it was a film every week. Respect for coming back full circle. I think we can end on a beautiful note that The Sopranos was, if there's one thing fundamental to the DNA of The Sopranos, it was authenticity and passion. No doubt, thousand percent. Gino, thanks. Thank you so much. 